who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Welcome to Election Shock Therapy here at Bethel University. I'm Chris Moore, back from the holiday break with a, just a just a touch of pneumonia. But everybody else here in my office is healthy. It makes your voice sound nice, though. I like. Does it? it? Yeah. yeah. Like, what, 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 nice. This, this is going to play well. Yeah. You think? Oh yeah. It's like yeah. a nice timbre. Yeah, yeah, I like right. it. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of like having a guest host, only it's still you. Right, so, and so we all feel comfortable, but it sounds different. Just wait until I start like coughing, like I have tuberculosis. <laughs> We're going to burn that mic, but yeah. oh, absolutely. <laughs> Tip it. Can you label that the Chris That's Moore right. mic? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Permanently yeah. now yeah. mine. Yeah. <laughs> No, I took a group. Um, uh, well, first of all, let's, let's go around here. But, um, it, joining me in my office today is uh, Sam Mulberry, Andy Bramson, and Mitch Crum. And uh, I took a group of students, uh, fine students here from Bethel University to Chicago for a conference just before Thanksgiving. They came back with several awards, and I came back with pneumonia. Um, so it was a win win. <laughs> so who's for the real winner there? <laughs> yeah, right? just yeah, about everybody. Yeah. Uh, um, so we're, we're in the final throes of the semester now, gentlemen. Uh, yeah. Bethel, here we have two more uh, this week of class, next week of class, and then finals, and then our commencement. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and our campus, because we live in the great white north, has over Thanksgiving break transformed itself magically into winter wonderland. There is greenery everywhere. There are there are choirs practicing. Are you in the mood for Christmas music? Um, you know, Chris, I was sitting in my office on Monday, and there was a thunderstorm. So, like, that doesn't really go mm-hmm. well with Christmas music. So, I, I, but I think I think the general rule is once you once you clear Thanksgiving, like Black Friday for me, I'm not a Black Friday shopper, but that's the really? beginning of Christmas music. Yeah. We have we have our yeah. tree up in our house. Our our, our house is decorated. That's uh, the the Friday after Thanksgiving is is when we buy our tree. So yeah, okay. so mm-hmm. I'm all in at this point. Yeah, Yeah, I affirm Sam's principles there, Um, but I also agree that it's problematic that even though it's gray and cold, there is no snow on the ground, really. (laughs) Um, That makes it less Christmassy. Yeah. My my policy is once the first snowflakes fall, then Christmas music is fair game. So if that oh, means they okay. fall, Ooh, wow. so if that means they fall in the first beginning of You're November, radical. late October, See, that, that, wow, that's, 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 an, that's an Ohio way of thinking. Like yeah. we can get snow pretty early here. <laughs> yeah. As far as I talking about the Christmas blizzard or no, Christmas, excuse me, the Halloween blizzard. Of, uh, as, as, as far as I'm concerned, that makes it fair game. It it's was all wow. five years ago this year, yeah. Mitchell. Yeah. Once yeah. once once it falls, it's wow. you, know, yeah. you are you are good to go. Wow. And yeah. you might be listening to Christmas music in May, man. I'm a Proponent yeah. for a, for a very late snowfall, and I, I, as as the only lifelong Minnesotan in the room, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. because <laughs> I know I mean, we all know what what well Mitchell, you're going to learn what Minnesota springs are like. They it's like what you think of as spring starts very late here. So the late the <laughs> longer we can push off snow, the better. I think like mm-hmm. I'm a fan of the December twenty is when we get snow. That's um, pretty great actually. Type of winter, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So this is ideal what we have right now. Yeah. I mean it's okay. it's muddy, but. At least it's not yeah. snow. I don't have to move this water; it just runs down my driveway. <laughs> and as we as we uh, tilt ever so slightly towards politics here, can I just say one of my uh, <laughs> one of my slight aggravations, both from conservatives and from liberals, is this tendency whenever it's a little bit warmer than usual or a little bit colder than usual to say ah global warming or ah global warming is a hoax. Like, no, that's not how this works. <laughs> that's not how the science works. Um, just the fact that there's no snow in the ground in Minnesota does not mean that uh, is not a direct result of climate change. Um, at least not in the short term. So sorry, I had to get my I, I, I get off my soapbox now. Take a cough drop instead. 
Uh, hey, if you're listening to us, uh, thank you for uh, spending this entire electoral um, season with us. Uh, we're uh, going to continue election shock therapy for at least another episode or two um, in a weekly format. And then we're probably going to transition to something maybe a little bit more diverse. Uh, we're going to be uh, still doing election shock therapy. It's not going to go away. But we're going to be introducing maybe some other shows to this channel. I would say I would say we're broadening the channel a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So um, similar cast of characters, but we're kind of um, but some ex- new faces expanding, too. Expanding, yeah, expanding that that cast of characters and expanding the type of topics. But I think the um, level of analysis will remain the same. Yes. You know, I think uh, if if you we're not going to stop being professors. That's, that's right. Thing. Yeah, we're just going to to um, shift those eyes to some other things as well. Yeah. So, yes. Yep. So stay tuned for that. We'll make sure that you know that well in advance. We're not going to you're going to be caught by surprise if we do something completely different. But if you are caught by surprise, how fun will that be? Oh, good point. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> Chris and I have something in the works that we're not going to quite share yet. Okay. it's coming soon. Oh, oh, it's on the down low. All right. No. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so mysterious. Well, if you uh, if you do like this this podcast, uh, again, please do take a minute, rate us on iTunes. That uh, that affects their algorithm and helps other people find us. You can also email us electionshocktherapy at gmail dot com, and we've got a couple emails, and I'll, I'll get to those a little bit later on in the podcast here, gentlemen. Before Thanksgiving. Uh, we were talking about transitions, and we spent our mm-hmm. last podcast talking a lot about the transitions within the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. There have been a few things that have happened since then. I'd like to touch on those briefly, but then I'd like to turn to transitions in society in general mm-hmm. and think about some of the ways that, that maybe democracy and normative discourse in the United States has changed, maybe in, con- in concert with this election or maybe as mm-hmm. a consequence of this election. But mm-hmm. let's get to the nuts and bolts first. Who are some of Trump's new cabinet members? Well, um, there's been a sort of been a mix of people outside of government, um, sort of and people who look a lot like Trump. So, sort of wealthy white um, businessmen. So, Steve, whose last name I can't really pronounce, is the new Secretary of Treasury. Wilbur this is, Ross, this is a former Goldman Sachs, yeah, banker. former Goldman Sachs guy. Wilbur Ross, who's a billionaire um, businessman, is um, the new Commerce Secretary mm-hmm. or designate. Of course, obviously these people have to be confirmed, right? Um, and then you any got chance these people more- won't get confirmed? Um. Yeah, By we should talk about Congress? that. There are a few that I, I could see there being an interesting Really? Fight. Okay. Um, but for the most part, I would expect them to be confirmed just because yeah. the Republicans do have a Senate mm-hmm. majority. But, but yeah, if certain things come out, we'll see. It'll, it'll be interesting. Without getting um, into specifics, what types of things would be the things that would lead to – I mean, you don't need to be specific about people. But like, um, if, in other, Especially if they were people who confirmed sort of some of the stereotypes surrounding the Trump campaign that these people are racist or something okay. like that. If something came out really ugly about – that um, that could make some Republican senators shy away. So the two, so the two people you should keep an eye on there. One of them doesn't need confirmation, and that's Steve Bannon. Right. Um, really no confirmation is necessary there, right. although he's, he's the one who could most easily be painted with that brush. Yeah. The, yeah, the, the, the next closest one is Jeff Sessions. Right. Jeff Sessions is a concern. And then, I mean, the thing is, like, again, the Treasury Secretary and the Commerce Secretary are not people who have a big political track record. So right. we'll see how that goes, right? I think they could be interesting. Um, then he's made more establishment-type picks. So he's got Elaine Chao, who is um, Bush's Labor Secretary, as his... Is, uh, and Mitch McConnell's trans- wife. And Mitch McConnell's wife, right? Uh, designated as his trans- Yeah, yeah she'll be okay. She's, a, she's an insider. There's and no McConnell has said he's not recusing himself on this one. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, he did. Okay. Uh, so, so she's the transportation secretary designate. And then Nikki Haley, governor of South Carolina, who opposed mm-hmm. um, Trump in the primary, she was backing Marco Rubio, is his um, designated UN um, or sort of uh, um, ambassador, ambassador right? So. So those are a few of them. There are others, of course. I'll let maybe Michael Flynn, National Security them. Advisor. Yeah. Um, I think. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I've, I, and, and just in terms of controversial picks, the Flynn pick is probably one that um, will 
will be talked about as well, um, mm-hmm. just because he's had a controversial record at the Pentagon before he left, and right. um, has also made some controversial statements. So. Does that does that have to be confirmed though? I don't think NSA no, does, no, right? No. Yeah. Uh, just so that kind of like Bannon saying, again, right, it's, it's controversial, like but it's right. not. Um, right, it's not something the Senate can do anything about. Right. So, right. so when does confirmation? When do confirmation hearings start? Uh, right away in January. January twentieth, okay. probably. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean. Uh, they they might and, and sometimes I mean if you have people who are pretty much slam dunk sometimes the Senate will just confirm them you know very quickly right um, if there's any questions about them like with a Jeff Sessions for example I would expect them to hold hearings and you know um, talk to him yeah. I would expect the Democratic minority in the Senate to play its cards carefully and to try to pick one or two of the Trump cabinet members to mm-hmm. really go after I think Sessions is a likely one uh, as Attorney yep. General. Um, I think they think they can, uh, yeah. They could maybe, maybe hit him harder than maybe they could hit uh, potential Secretary of State or Secretary mm-hmm. of Defense or something. He's like tricky that. because he's a senator, and, yes. and usually the Senate does have a long tradition that they would have to go against of generally sort of um, being kind confirming their own, their own yeah. um, pretty easily. I mean, they have broken that at times. John Tower as you know, Defense Secretary in the first Bush comes to mind, but it, yeah, they generally want to be kind to their own. Yeah. So that's that's the other tension with picking on sessions, I guess. But good point. Good point. But yeah, um, he probably will get picked on. As a foreign policy guy, I um, uh, this we're kind of in the hot stove season for political appointees here. There's a lot of speculation about the ones yeah. that haven't been named yet. Cespedes is off the table now. <laughs> Cespedes so. is off the table. Um, yes. Uh, with the Mets. So here are three. Uh, so the new the new potential um, speculation is that Sarah Palin might get picked for Veterans mm. Affairs. Um, <laughs> which makes almost no sense to me. Um, can I can I go up one up and just say it makes no sense to me? Sure. I yeah. I, I, mean, I, I this, ha- this has to be the Trump transition team trolling the media, right? Yeah. Because we know that Trump does not like Sarah Palin. Period. Right. Um, at least I, that's that was the reporting from the campaign. And he looked visibly. I mean, I have to say, like Trump says some kind of wacky things, but when he listened to Sarah Palin talk, he looked visibly. Um, uncomfortable, yeah. <laughs> and and for you to be up there on the stage and sort of out crazy Trump in what right. you're saying is that's big league. Um. <laughs> and because of of who Trump is and because of who his supporters were, I think he's going to be motivated to try to get somebody really competent um, into Veterans Affairs. So not Sarah Palin, you're saying? Well, I'm, uh, she's she's a former governor, uh-huh. um, but she has no experience with Veterans Affairs other yeah. than in her role as governor in the state of Alaska. So I, I would expect him to pick a former military person. That would make um, a lot more in, sense uh, for Veterans Affairs. Yeah. So maybe maybe he's floating her as the sort of um, to make the, make people happy with whoever he actually actually chooses, <laughs> which something. is a pretty good strategy. Which right? in that case would be pretty yeah smart. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think that, that the Trump campaign has shown us is he's pretty astute at the rope a dope. Mm-hmm. Um, the set our expectations at a certain place and then mm-hmm. and then and then hit them in a different place and and then and then leverage the difference. The one I'm interested in, though, is not so much Sarah Palin and Veterans Affairs. I sort of said that, you know, tongue-in-cheek. But I said, how about Secretary of State? Mm-hmm. There are three yeah. front-running names right now, and they could not be more different from each other. Here's the here's the three finalists, as far as I'm aware. Yes. David, oh, there was one one report said there were four, but yes, there's okay, three Okay, okay, let's, well, let's, let's do all four then. Yeah. So here's, here's the three that I'm, I'm thinking about, then yep. throwing you the other one. So David Petraeus, former uh, general, former uh, – um, 
leading light of America's counterinsurgency strategy, someone mm-hmm. who um, has written deeply and has thought deeply about this, unfortunately, had to resign in disgrace and actually um, plead to uh, disclosing confidential information mm-hmm. because he shared confidential information with his girlfriend slash biographer um, versus Rudy Giuliani, America's former mayor, um, <laughs> mayor of New York during 9-11, um, but a very controversial and hot-headed uh, politician, uh-huh. someone who does not typically fit within that Secretary of State kind of position. And no last, diplomatic experience. Mitt yeah. Romney, former Republican nominee, um, ardent critic of the, of the mm-hmm. Trump administration, uh, much like Nikki Haley, but maybe even mm-hmm. more so. And yep. now, perhaps moving into the a very prominent role in the in the in the in the administration. It's quite the truth. Uh, who, who was the fourth one, Andy? Did you? Just I, I didn't actually hear a name. I just okay. heard that the list had four names. Okay. And the two that they were definitely confirming were Giuliani and Romney. But they've clearly been talking to Petraeus, so I think he's likely to be one of the other two. This could not be a more different set of three no. individuals for Secretary of State. Yeah. And and as a foreign policy person. Um, because Trump does not have a lot of direct diplomatic experience himself, mm-hmm. the person in this role is going to have an outsized role in uh, in the conduct of American foreign policy. Yeah, most likely. I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's an interesting pick. I mean, because Petraeus is the most qualified in terms of sort of his international bona fides. I mean, he's got a Ph.D. in international relations as well. But, mm-hmm. um, but on the other hand, I mean, you have this really big concern of, you know, you just ran a presidential campaign in which you hammered the candidate of the other party um, for her carelessness with national security documents and her mishandling of those. And now if you seriously nominate somebody as secretary of state who essentially did the same thing, only more so, I mean, he actually mm-hmm. has been pled guilty to this. Right. You know, Hillary Clinton maintains her innocence, right? As one of my, um, as one of my friends uh, said to me last night, like, do you think per- Petraeus had to let his probation officer know he was going to meet with Trump for the night? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. And so, I mean, like to me, the, the safe pick here is Romney, except that, you know, there's the obvious point that he and Trump are not best buddies. So, mm-hmm. But That's they're totally bonding and getting some good chemistry, and they enjoyed a, a fancy meal that had all the courses reported on. I can't remember them all off the top really? of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yes, I think Romney had lamb and Trump had steak. Um, but I don't remember much other than that. What are your thoughts on being somebody who's who's a, was opposed to a candidate <coughs> – and then and then serving in their administration because I mean there's there's obviously you could say well how could you serve for somebody that you so deeply oppose in that position right. mm-hmm. but that at the same time you could say if you deeply oppose them then getting involved might keep things from going off the tracks right. more like right. what are the mm-hmm. what are the thoughts on that well we have a nice history in the United States or at least we have a narrative in the United States of uh, candidates going to work for their former opponents mm-hmm. um, Hillary Clinton working for Don- for Barack Obama. Um, but that's yeah. different, right? Why? Than this, I mean, um, because when, when, oh well, isn't it? I mean, like, 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 like when when yeah. when Obama became the the nominee, Hillary wasn't still campaigning against. Him. And quite to the contrary, she spoke at the DNC. Good point. She went and campaigned okay. for him. So I mean, you're saying because the opposition to Trump was in, within the Republican Party yeah. was more vociferous mm-hmm. than it's ever been before. That this that this is right not. because because I would, I would say him, Hillary right? yeah. Hillary running against Obama yeah. was saying. I would be a better president than him. Romney wasn't running. He was saying this guy shouldn't be president. Right. I mean, that's yeah. different. Well, and, and and again, he, he didn't just say that during the primaries. I mean, typically, to Sam's point, you might say really nasty things during the primaries. But once right. the candidate 
is in fact the candidate, right, is going mm-hmm. to be the the nominee of your party, then you get in line and you back him, which is what a lot of Republicans did. But some Republicans, um, like Mitt Romney, refused to do that, um, you know, up to and through election day, right? Yeah, and some so that still makes it are. a little different. And some still are. Yeah. yeah. Um, the one I uh, I think we might have mentioned this in our previous podcast before Thanksgiving, but um, Elliot Cohen, former uh, right. counselor to Condoleezza yeah, yeah. Rice. Um, initially, after the, after Trump won, said Republic, you know, moderate Republicans or traditional Republicans need to go work for this guy, mm-hmm. need to fill out his foreign policy uh, repertoire. Mm-hmm. And then after meeting with uh, some of the transition team, he cha- he reversed his course and he tweeted out on social media, "Stay away, run away. These guys right. don't want anything to do with the traditional Republican foreign policy establishment." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's some there's some Republicans who I think are still av- w- would still like to avoid this administration. They see it as a toxic administration. It's a deeply unpopular mm-hmm. administration mm-hmm. and maybe one that's um, geared for four years and not eight. And so they, they, they don't want to attach themselves to it. But there's others like maybe like Mitt Romney who's doesn't have a big political future mm-hmm. unless he gets back into federal politics, um, who sees this as maybe a way to, um, to contribute positively to an administration he's already more skeptical of. Mm-hmm. But that's a pretty... That's a fairly ennobling kind of sentiment, if that's if that's what his motive is. Well, and if I mean again, if he wants to serve, to your point, Chris, if he wants to serve in national government, I mean, this is his chance, right? Right. Romney's going to be seventy in February, yeah. right? So, I mean, he's you know, there's there's not going to be by the time there there is another administration, uh, Republican administration, he's going to be far too old, right? So that's a good um, point. So this is it for yeah. him. That's a really good point. So. Um, Let's see. Other, uh, we have we we need, we need a Secretary of Defense, we need a Secretary of State, correct? Yep, we're still. Yep. And um, then we'll 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 have most of our cabinet in place at that point. Yeah, there's a few others. I can't think of all. Interior hasn't been named for correct. sure. Correct. Yeah, um, Homeland Security. I don't. Homeland think Security hasn't been named, yeah. as you said. Veteran Affairs hasn't been named. Right, I mean, and there's some of the um, some of the other lower yeah. ones. Right. Energy. Yeah. Well, transportation's good. Transportation's chow. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Right. Labor hasn't been named. Um, correct. So yeah. There's a few out there. So those are the transitions within the Trump administration. These are the things we should be looking at now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to, to transition to <laughs> societal transitions. Yes. Um, because we could spend a lot of time looking just inside the White House or just inside uh, the Beltway and talk about how these offices are getting filled. But this election has been a bellwether for the United States in right. general. And I'd like to bring up some of the topics. We, we've been asked a few things on our email. Um, again, electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. <laughs> uh, um, and we've and uh, a of things that we've been talking about too. So I'd like to talk about um, just some of the ways that that maybe our society is changing, and a little bit mm-hmm. of um, well, there's a number of stories, a number of ways to kind of cut into this. But I guess I'll just ask the general question first: Do you ge- do you two gentlemen think? And by the way, I say two. Uh, Sam, of course, had to step out. He has a meeting. A meeting. Um, but uh, Mitch and Annie, do you think? That this election signals a shift in American political life. Yes, I mean, I, I do think that this. Um, it feels to me like this election has changed what kind of discourse is acceptable. Um, things that we would have before, you know, candidates would have gotten in serious trouble for. Um, it would have destroyed their campaigns. It would have led them to them being defeated. Um, have were did not did not defeat um, Trump's campaign. Yeah. And I think that has made people at a societal level feel freer to say um, things that they might not have felt free to say and to even to do things that they um, might not have felt free to do. And so it does, mm. it does feel like that's a, a shift in terms of sort of what's, 
what's okay, what's acceptable. Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm less sure that we've seen a huge manifestation of that. I mean, never quite sure how to interpret the stories we see in the news. I mean, there certainly have yes. been stories about sort of racially motivated incidences mm-hmm. uh, um, and, you know, sort of, you know, nasty rhetoric being painted out here and there and so forth. Absolutely. But, um, but I'm not sure is that like something that's widespread or are we simply hearing the sort of loudest accounts of a few isolated inst- instances? And I'm, I'm just not sure. I don't yeah. – I haven't seen any hard data. There's a um, little bit of data emerging yeah. here. I mean because we're so close to the election, accounting becomes a huge issue. Be- mm-hmm. and, and this is just a stat- – this is a statistics problem, right? Um, anytime we're looking at a narrow time frame, uh, yeah. a small mm-hmm. number of incidents can, can make something look – like, right. make like like a trend when it's not. Right. Um, and but, people are fired up and angry and you know yep. whatnot after the election. I mean, so it becomes interesting. Like, so what are we looking at six months from now? Right, that right. would tell exactly. us more yeah. if we've really seen a change in the discourse or if this is just right. sort of a temporary emotional bump. But at least, at least in the very short term, there has mm-hmm. been a rise in racialized incidents throughout the United yeah. States. Yeah. It certainly feels like um, Southern Poverty Law Center mm-hmm. um, is reporting, you know, an, an increased number of reported of, of racialized incidents. Mm-hmm. Now, admittedly, there's going to be a small effect of the fact that um, we're also looking for those things because we think they're going to happen too. Right. So there's a little bit of a confirmation right. effect, but I, I still think that there, yeah. there's there's an increase in these and 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 some fairly high profile ones too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of good football in this room. Um, uh, Mitch is a undergrad from Ohio State and an IU PhD. I'm an I'm an Ohio State PhD. Andy's a Notre Dame PhD. Um, That's not as good football as it is some years, but anyway. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but on average, we're yeah we're doing pretty well. Um, but um, at Ohio State, uh, in addition to um, a, a, a violent extremist motivated attack that happened just a couple mm-hmm. days ago. Uh, prior to that, there were some racialized incidents at Ohio State. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been racialized incidents here in the Twin Cities where we, where we live and, and other places as well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, these things are happening. They're not just happening in places that we might typically mm-hmm. expect them. Right. <laughs> Andy, you said that this is maybe signaling new normative behaviors. Now, mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm, I have a chicken and egg question for you here. Is the is the election making new normative behaviors in politics more permissible, or have as the permissiveness of, of these new of these normative behaviors facilitated the election of, of Donald Trump? I, I mean, I would point to I think Donald Trump was able to unleash this because he was able to succeed, right? I guess is how I would think about it. Um, because again, it's not like he's the first person to say these kinds of things, right? Um, or to to say unacceptable things in a while. Um, yeah, the first person to run for that high of office to say that level of things. But like typically what's happened is when people say really crazy stuff, right? So mm-hmm. for example, I mean, like you think about Todd Aiken talking about sort of legitimate rape and, you know, oh, like women's point. bodies have a way of shutting down this stuff. I mean, like that killed his Senate campaign, right? Yes. Um, for mm-hmm. some very good reasons, right? People said this is unacceptable. And even though Missourians tend to be fairly conservative um, and lean Republican, um, they couldn't lean that far, right? right? I mean, he was just, this was unacceptable discourse and he got beaten mm-hmm. um, pretty easily in the end. Um, because that was not okay to say, right? Richard Murdoch in Indiana is another example of somebody oh, who just said some yeah. pretty crazy stuff in the 2012 Senate campaign. And again, Indiana's pretty conservative. We voted for Mitt Romney that year. I was uh, in Indiana up until that spring. Um, and Murdoch lost pretty overwhelmingly to my yeah. former representative, mm-hmm. Joe Donnelly, right? So, yeah. um, so I think that feels like that kind of discourse in the past was, you know, was a deal killer. Like it was going to move a certain part of the electorate to vote against you. 
and it just didn't feel like it did in this in this instance. A lot of people voted for for Trump, and then and now it feels to me like they're they're now feeling empowered because like, well, hey, look, Americans are obviously okay with this. I mean, enough of them voted for Trump that he won this election, um, so maybe it's okay. So I guess that's how I think about it. But I don't have any hard proof. I mean, that's my sort of yeah, analysis. I mean, it's, but it's, I'm it's, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to tell. I mean, especially because. You know, you also have the factors that we've talked about before. I know mm-hmm. with, you know, the problem of vo- voting against rather than voting for. Right. And so it's hard right. to say how much of this is um, really the effect of something new where the American people right. are suddenly, you know, OK with all of this mm-hmm. kind of rhetoric mm-hmm. and how much of it is they just really didn't want another Clinton in the White right. House. Right. Um, and so, you know, so it's hard to it's hard to say, you know, whether after, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a few years of this, you know, in the White House, if the American people will just be tired of it and there'll be a backlash. I mean, in fact, that's mm, right. what we might expect most of all, really, mm-hmm. is usually what mm-hmm. you see is, you know, you see one party come into power and then the other party is able to um, to regroup and come back. Yeah, point, and yeah. so, you know, we very well be, you know, in four years we may be having, you know, and the media may be having a very different conversation mm-hmm. where they're saying, oh, look, you know, it's the new Democratic rise. And, mm-hmm. Right, um, for sure. You know, they're, they're taking back over everything. Um, right. So I, I think it's hard to say. I do I do agree with and uh, with with Andy's point about discourse, though. I mean, I think that's absolutely something that has has uh, mm-hmm. probably been deeply shifted um, mm. by this by this election. Um, the other thing that I think maybe has shifted um, somewhat, and I think this is um, an interesting reflection. And it's not my area of expertise, so maybe yeah, you you'll you'll want to say something like this. But I think it also reflects um, a shift in view of America's role in the world. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things that mm-hmm. you know through through the Cold War, um, you know, the general sentiment seemed to be that you know America needed to be the leader of the free world. We needed to be the ones who were basically um, in control, and that doesn't seem to be the driving um, view for most people anymore. It seems mm-hmm. to be the driving view is we need to protect ourselves. We need to do what's good for us. We need to you know build walls and stop trade. And um, stay out of conflicts, at least mm-hmm. uh, at least at some level. So, right, um, and that's that's a very different um, approach than what we've seen uh, in the past. And I think, in some ways, that also might be part of what obviously hindered Hillary Clinton as well. So, yeah, it's worth noting too. I mean, like it's on the one hand, I think this has freed people to have this discourse because I mean, like Trump won, right? But the other side of this is that Trump's, I mean, we shouldn't overstate Trump's victory here, right? I mean, on the one hand, he did win a big electoral vote victory. It was the biggest victory mm-hmm. for Republican since the first Bush back in 88, yep. right? Um, on yeah. the other hand, this is the weakest um, victory in terms of how many people actually voted for him, right? right. Um, right. In terms yeah. of his percentage of the popular vote, um, it's the weakest victory. I'm trying to think of the last Republican who won with that low of a percentage, and I can't, I can't even like go back that far. I'm not sure how far back I have to go, right? But I mean, he got a lower percentage of the vote than Mitt Romney did in um, 2012 in his mm-hmm. losing effort, right? He got a lower percentage of the vote for sure than Bush did in either of his two. I believe um, John McCain did. Than the well. first Bush did, right? Um, yep. McCain, I think, had maybe a little lower, wasn't okay. he in the 45 range, and Trump's at like 46.4, but okay. but comparable, right? I mean, not that big a difference. Right. You're right. Yeah. And McCain yeah. got absolutely slaughtered in the 2008 election. Yeah. Right. Um, but his popular vote total, I mean, I think actually in terms of raw votes, you might be right. He might actually have more. Um, but it was pretty close in any case. And, and this, has been, pretty this has been rankling Donald Trump, so. too, at a personal oh, yeah. level. Mm-hmm. This is why he um, keeps talking about, like, why the this election's not fair. You know, like, there's cheating going on in California. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, he, you know, tweet, uh, and this is, uh, we, we kind of, the three of us prior to this podcast had a little bit of a laugh about this. Um, it, but it might be a fairly serious thing. Mm-hmm. The, um, when Donald Trump uh, tweeted that there were two to three million uh, right. Um, uh, fraudulent votes cast in places like California and Washington, uh, which kept him from winning the popular vote count. Um, 
this is just demonstrably false. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's oh, yeah. there's uh, yeah. no political science evidence right. um, of any kind. There was a there was a fabricated report on a right. um, on a show called Infowars or a website called Infowars. Sorry, mm-hmm. um, that that alleged this, but there's just there's there's right. no yeah. basis for it, and no yeah. evidence, and there's no um, there's no corroborating evidence yeah. either. No, it's nonsense. I mean, like I think to be fair to Trump, like the. The popular vote might have looked rather different if this was a popular vote contest, right? So I, I don't want to yes. overstate like what that you know that this sort of means he doesn't have the confidence. I mean, he might have won the popular vote if this was a popular vote contest. It certainly would have changed the way the campaigns campaigned, right? But yep. but at the same time, like the, it is also worth noting, right, that a lot of Americans really didn't support him. I mean, right. about fifty three point six percent of the people um, who voted voted for somebody other than Trump, right? So that and he remains below water when it comes to popularity. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, sure. I haven't looked. At, I haven't looked. Well, it's not. Let me correct that. The last time I saw a presidential an approval rating for Donald Trump was at election time. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I haven't seen a poll of his approval rating subsequent to the yeah. election. And one would expect it to bump up a little bit. I would think so. There's usually do, a winner's but, bias that, that um, produces that a slight positivity effect yeah, from winning an election. I mean, people get hopeful, right? Like, yeah. He's going to be the president, so hopefully this will work out well. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But I don't. So, but um, at least at election time, more people disliked him than liked him. Yeah. That was also true of Hillary right. Clinton, to exactly. be fair. But, um, well, so, okay, so. This is. Uh, let me get back to this. To this brief. This this moment about sort of this tweet he had about you know two or three million fraudulent votes. Right. Um, is this part of the new norm? Is uh, um, is questioning the validity of the democracy um, part of the new normal? Hmm. Uh, you know, in some ways, I mean, this is you know, Trump is just saying um, the loudest what has been building in some ways, um, mm-hmm. especially on the especially among the among Republicans for a while. Um, there have been a number of questions on, um, you know, vote, you know, whether there should be voter IDs and things like that, that Mm -hmm. have led to, to people questioning this, you know, once again, without evidence, I mean, there's never been, um, any serious evidence, um, to support that this is a problem in any way. Mm -hmm. Um, but nonetheless, this is something that's been sort of there. It's mostly been at the margins, although, Mm -hmm. you know, it's gained more acceptance as voter ID laws have come into vote and things like that. Um, but it's never been as certainly not as loud and as um, direct as as Trump. It's usually been couched as sort of we need to protect from voter fraud right. rather than that there has been massive voter fraud. Right, right, right. And mm-hmm. so I think that's mm-hmm. a major shift um, mm-hmm. in the way that the the rhetoric mm-hmm. is going here with Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, and and it's certainly alleging you know two to three you know you know two million fraudulent votes. I mean, essentially in some ways you know. You sort of immediately sort of question, you know, is is he actually questioning whether he won? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, sort of sort, sort of the irony here, right? right you know, that, right. that 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 the winner is alleging that the vote uh, that the vote counts aren't accurate, and uh, you know, but I think this yeah, points... but he's he's alleging he should have won by more, right? Right, I mean, right. but but I right. think it, you know, it obviously you know points to you know your original framing of this, right? It points to the fragility of Trump's ego, yeah. um, and and, yeah, and temperament. So, yeah. um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's and I think that's the big thing that concerns me, right? Is that like you know, you're you are the president elect. You won over 300 electoral votes, which mm-hmm. is a significant victory. Yes, you lost the popular vote, but you know what? You're president elect. Like let's mm-hmm. focus on the task at hand, which is getting your administration ready to be up and running mm-hmm. um in about 7 weeks, right? Not worrying about the fact that you won fewer popular votes. Do you think that's right? an open question or is that inevitable? I mean, Will the, will the office and the role of the office force him to focus, or might he continue to have sort of these Twitter escapades? Well, 
Well, it'll force them to focus to a degree, right? But, okay. I mean, it's like anybody doing a job. I mean, I think that, you know, if you don't want to get kicked out of the job, then, yeah, you have to do your job to some extent. But there's there's varying levels of focus. I mean, there's doing sort of the bare minimum to sort of, you know, keep the, the job afloat, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's doing it really well in a focused way. And, and right now what I see is just, uh, you know, someone who's obviously easily distracted um, mm-hmm. by issues that really ought to be, you know, on the periphery if they're at all. Um, so that's that's a little concerning. Yeah, there's also been, and I've seen several people making this speculation now um, that in fact Trump may be even more strategic with his tweets. Yes, um, and that in fact uh, some people have been suggesting that perhaps his tweets are are actually a strategic move to distract people from what's going on in his administration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, you know he tweets this out the PT Barnum kind of move, like look over here, right? Um, right. Exactly. Right. It's sort of like sort of like you know there you know mm-hmm. he, he he wants to distract from you know perhaps media reports that there are going to be massive conflicts of interest mm-hmm. um, with his businesses, and so he wants to get everybody talking about flag burning instead of that. Or mm-hmm. you know he makes some controversial cabinet picks, so he wants to get everybody talking about. Um, you know, the, whether he won the popular vote or not, things like mm-hmm. that. And so, sure. um, so, you know, so I think one of the things that will be uh, interesting to see is how Trump uses um, Twitter. And I've even seen some reports in the media now. There are some media people who are sort of questioning, you know, should we even continue to report mm-hmm. on the tweets? Although I think they're not going to be able to avoid it. You know? Oh, no, I That's can't. the, uh, you know, both, for, both right. for ratings and because of the fact that this is the president of the United States who's saying these things. <laughs> um, and, can, I, can I just say, as a political scientist... Um, I am a small part of me somewhere is very gleeful about these tweets because as a, <laughs> as a political psychologist, we often uh, yeah. lament that we can't just get words straight from politicians mouths, no, that they're highly can't. edited, they're highly scripted, um, they're hidden behind speech writers, and we can't really tell what their actual sentiments are. No problem here. Yeah. We're, quite, we're yeah. quite clear that these 140 characters are being produced by Donald Trump right out of his brain. Right. You so. can you can definitely tell like there are, so there are moments when he's had his Twitter account being you know like handled. And you can mm. tell the difference between sort of the Donald Trump mm. tweets and the Donald T- Trump team. Well, during tweets, the campaign, right? even they were, yeah. there, were, there were two phones that tweeted to his account. Yeah. One was an Android, one was an iPhone, yep. and yep. people kind of commonly believed that the iPhone was the one that was in his hand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The one was like sort of the the standard boilerplate kind of campaign you know, right. tweets, and then there were the you know like. Yep. You know the big league and this, yeah, thing, yeah, 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 this sure. these kind of comments, right? So, well, yeah. both of you said kind of gave a slightly different take on Twitter, and I want to I want to pin you down on it now. So, uh, <laughs> Mitch, you sort of said that, that, that he might become more strategic with his Twitter use; that this might actually be a tactic. Mm-hmm. And Andy, I I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but you seem to suggest that this is this is distracting. Um, is can is Twitter and the way that Donald Trump became president and the, and the population that he mobilized to help elect him? Does this help him or hurt him? Does it help him or hurt him to be tweeting like this? You're Absolutely. I mean, there was a uh, a Red Sox. I'm, I'm not a big baseball fan, but for a few years, Manny Ramirez was the big mm-hmm. was the best player on the Red Sox. And there was a there was a mantra the Red Sox used called "Let Manny be Manny." He was kind of weird. He was kind of goofy, but he was so good. Just let him do his thing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, to what extent does the Trump uh, presidency say, "Let Donald be Donald," and and do this yeah. kind of stuff because it's working for him? Mm-hmm. Well. There's work. I mean, I think there's a couple things I'd point to. One is that what works in a campaign doesn't always work mm. in governing, right? And right. I think we uh, saw that point. with our current president, right. actually. Um, Barack Obama was a brilliant campaigner. He was brilliant at organizing a campaign, and I would argue he's been significantly less brilliant at governing, right? Um, he hasn't been very good at getting people to work with him. His own party has expressed frustration behind closed doors at mm-hmm. the fact that he just, you know, he didn't work Congress nearly as well as he could have and should have. Um, and so, consequently, he's leaving with a presidency that, you know, 
feels like it fell short of expectations, the sort of the, the heady expectations we had back in 2008, right? Um, because his abilities as a governor didn't match his abilities as a campaigner. So I don't mm-hmm. think the, the one necessarily translates into the other. And so just because it worked in the campaign doesn't mean it'll work in governing. That's can, wait, I think the other thing – oh, oh sorry. Can I flip that around real quick. Can you think of a president who has been a lousy campaigner but a pretty good governor? Um. I mean, even in the I early have, I have days, one that comes to mind. But in I, the early days, I would say Nixon before he got distracted. I mean, he was mm-hmm. actually, you know, he was actually a pretty moderate governor. Um, he kind of worked with Congress somewhat effectively, um, obviously, before he decided to start, you know, tapping <laughs> um, into people's information and so forth. But, yep. um, you know, so, but he wasn't a very great campaign. I was going to say George H.W. Bush. Yeah. Oh, yeah. H.W. Mm-hmm. Bush yeah, hated sure. campaigning, really. Um, so, yeah, he's another good example of that. Um, yeah. Those are two of the. Okay. To the examples I think I'm sorry, of, but, I stepped on your point. But um, the the other point I guess I would make is I mean I think Mitch made this argument to me yesterday and I found it very compelling and interesting. The sort of this argument that maybe he's just trying to distract um, from you know other things he's doing. In which case he's very shrewd. Like if that's if that's what he's doing, right? And so then that suggests something else that might be interesting, which is one way to interpret the tweets is that he's really obsessing about this, right? That he's actually spending his time thinking about the fact that he lost the popular vote or mm-hmm. thinking about that he's angry about flag burning and you know wants to deal with that. Which it would be Has disturbing. Has been an issue before this last tweet? No. I, this seems to have come out of nowhere for yeah, me. Yeah, it feels like it's came out of nowhere to me, too. So if he's really obsessing about those, that's a problem. On the other hand, if he's just very shrewdly got a list of sort of provocative things I can say through my Twitter account yeah. to distract people from things I'm doing, um, that's disturbing at another level because it might suggest that he's going to try to pull stuff over on us. But it suggests that he's focused on the task at hand. So I guess that's good as far as it goes. Then the question is, what's he doing with that focus? And that's where, you know, that could be good or disturbing depending on what he decides sure. to put forward. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of in terms of whether this uh, whether Twitter will help him or hurt him, uh, I mean, I I guess in the end it seems like uh, just as as a matter of speculation, it seems like it will hurt him in mm-hmm. the end. Um, you know, in the in the long run, you have to think about you know what the, what the office of the presidency means. Is it means it's representing all Americans? It means <laughs> it, um, right. it 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 is that you know he he has to be the face of the nation. And if you think about a lot of what the office of the president is, it relies on you know what what political scientists sometimes call the power to persuade mm-hmm. and if if trump is constantly using twitter in this sort of incendiary way it's going to undermine his ability to work with people it's going to undermine eventually his, his ability to relate to and um you know get get a majority of americans behind him mm-hmm. and what that ultimately will lead to will undermine his ability to govern and could you know could lead to a lot of problems um mm-hmm. you know very very quickly in his administration yeah i agree well, I um, as we continue to talk about transitions and whether this uh, this election and whether this presidency signals a new normal in American politics, I have to bring up a story which is both I think important but also kind of kind of amusing that happened <laughs> yesterday. I sent this yep. article out to you about um, the the governmental um, ethics office, the, yes. the U.S. The United States <laughs> Office of Governmental <laughs> Ethics. Yep. Um, how much I, I, before um, I sent this to you? How familiar were you with, with the U.S. OGE? Um, I was not familiar with this. Yeah, nope, way. not so much. Right? This is. Um, I was aware that this existed. That there's an office of governmental ethics. It is. You might have been one up on me there. It's designed to advise the executive branch in general on uh, ethical behaviors. It um doesn't. It has some enforcement power, but it's primarily in an, in an, in an advisory mm-hmm. capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, it's a, it's up to Congress to censure the executive if it acts right. unethically. Right. Um, but this office um tweeted 
at Donald Trump. Once the, um, <laughs> let's, let's, let's be clear. This is a U.S. governmental office. They're typically kind of buttoned down, kind of stayed. Um, they don't typically get involved in social media. They're not activists yeah. in any way. They're, They're bureaucrats. Bureaucrats, right? And yeah. um, when Donald Trump tweeted that he was going to uh, leave his great business in total, or he said, illegal documents are being crafted to take me completely out of business operations, the, the, this office tweeted and said, we told your counsel we'd sing your praises if you divested. We meant it. Um, and basically uh, was sort of subtweeting Donald Trump and trying to, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like, kind of slow clap him for, for promising to divest himself of his business. Yeah. This is how our government is now speaking to itself yeah. through 140 characters in and, and, and to be clear, the, the OGE is sort of using Donald Trumpian kind of language. Yes, they wrote, they for example, <laughs> these are a couple of their tweets. Um, OGE applauds the total divestor decision. Bravo, exclamation point. And then sec- um, uh, another minute later, brilliant, exclamation point. <laughs> Divestiture is good for you, very good for America, exclamation point. This is not typically how our government functions. Is this just a one-off? Is this just like one employee kind of getting goofy with the Twitter? Um, or is this like, are we going to have a government that sort of talks to itself like this? Yeah, maybe they could just have their like, could they have their like meetings via Twitter and just like tweet <laughs> stuff at each other like, like, you know, could you have Michael Flynn tweeting national security information? And Can we that? not do that, please? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, is, it, is, it is good for transparency. Well, yes, that's true. See? I mean, And you political psychologists should be happy, right? <laughs> hey, I mean, uh, this is fascinating, but um, this is really weird. <laughs> This is really it's weird. seriously weird. Yeah, I, agree. I don't know. And then that, okay, so I'm I'm, I'm putting too. I'm, this is too fine of a point on this specific issue, but I do wonder if we're sort of entering into a world in which, because of social media, because of who our president is, but also because of how we've related to that person mm-hmm. prior to them becoming president, mm-hmm. if we're going to see that sort of just this less. I don't think respect for the office is exactly what I have in mind here, but some level of informality within our government that we previously haven't had in recent years. Yeah, that could happen. I think it's informality. I think it's also one of the things that's different about social media and what it has Mm. done is it's put people a little bit more directly in contact with politicians. True. And in the past, that's mostly been a liability. You know, (laughs) basically, politicians have really struggled to know how to handle social media. Um, Mm. You know, Barack Obama did, uh, you know, was celebrated because he actually seemed to do a pretty good job with it. But his social media presence was extremely controlled. Oh, yeah. Um, Very tight. Very tight. Yeah. Um, and And the thing that made it effective, you know, was the fact that it was so controlled. And so, you know, he had a team of people working on it to try to make it you know, his message mm-hmm. very clear mm-hmm. that came through it. Yep. Um, and, you know, in some ways, you know, a lot of politicians who've tried to do other things with social media have just run into trouble. They've said something, you know, in the heat of a moment that would get them in trouble um, and things like that. I and mean, with Trump, it's the opposite. You know, he's actually he's using social media to directly uh, say things to people that otherwise might, you know, might be mediated. It might not, um, you know, get it might not get through exactly the way that he wants it to. Yeah. And that's both good and bad. I mean, on the one hand, it's good because, uh, you know, what politicians have so, uh, rightly, I'm going to say, um, have complained about in the media. And this is, you know, across the board. And this mm-hmm. is not a partisan mm-hmm. issue. But, um, you know, across the board, they've complained that the media has not played enough of their actual statements. Mm. Um, and we know this is true, right? You know, the sound bites have gone yep. down from like 45 seconds on average a couple of decades ago down to now where it's like six seconds or something yep. like that. Yep. And. So, you know, so so politicians rightly complain that they do not get enough direct airtime. And it's mostly mm-hmm. just people talking about what they've said without actually playing what they've said. And right. about one line or a couple of words. Right. right. I mean, just mm-hmm. you know, picking yeah. on that. 
And 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 so Donald Trump, in some ways, I mean, there's a I guess the positive way to put the spin on the social media sure. is this is a way this this was sort of inevitable, maybe even mm-hmm. um, that there mm-hmm. would be some way that politicians would eventually find to more directly interact with people on yep. a mass scale yep. um, because yep. the media was Good no point. longer supplying that role. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and so in that way, when we look at Trump here, we have Trump um, in some ways maybe showing a new model of how to maximize mm-hmm. that kind of exposure to say, look, I'm going to directly talk to people if the media won't right. carry you know, enough of, of my message and my actual words, I'm going to actually do it. Now, with Trump, I'm not sure that he can completely complain about that since some of his rallies <laughs> were carried in total by CNN and things like right, that. Right, but, right. So I'm not sure that he can totally complain about that. But I think this may signal a new model for other politicians to be able to successfully use social media. And that uh, might be a significant change for how, for how Twitter and, and social media uh, relates regular people to politics. Good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Well, there's one other aspect of this transition that I can't let us go today without talking about, and that is the concept of truth. And um, Truth or truthiness? Well, <laughs> thank you, Stephen Colbert. Yes. Well, this has been brewing for a while because yeah. Colbert uh, uh, coined this truthiness idea um, mm. well before the emergence of the Trump campaign. This right. Is, uh, but there's um, – well, I, ha- I have to start with this, and, uh, and forgive me for this. I saw – I got totally suckered in to a news story. That, not my fault, uh, was also suckered into by the Washington Post mm. and by the, and by New York Magazine, which was um, over the over the Thanksgiving break. Apparently, at like three in the morning, um, CNN accidentally in, instead of playing an Anthony Bourdain episode, accidentally played about an hour and a half of hardcore pornography. Um, you're looking at me with raised eyebrows because this isn't true. Okay. It's totally fabricated. I'm relieved. <laughs> I, yeah, me yeah. too, right? Um, uh, totally fabricated, but a whole bunch of um, news sites, including very respectable ones like the Washington Post, bit mm. on this and reported wow. it as if it were true. Wow. Um, and, of course, and, how many people were really watching CNN from 3 to 4.30? <laughs> in the morning <laughs> over Thanksgiving break. Yeah, exactly. Um, You're supposed to be out Black Friday shopping, right? right. I didn't. But, demonstrably yeah. untrue, yeah. but I bid on it. I told my wife about it. I'm like, I can't believe this happened. I guess somebody's going to get fired. And, well, no, it didn't, it didn't happen. It's, it fits all kinds of classic narrative tropes. Yep. Um, yep. But the, um, the point of this, or the point of bringing this up is one of the other transitions in our society is we're starting to struggle with something um, relating to evidentiary standards of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, or if I'm uh, to tap yep. into sort of some of uh, Mitch's language here, sort of have we crossed a barrier of uh, an epistemological barrier um, where uh, truth uh, is is a harder, slipperier concept to grasp onto mm-hmm. in politics? Mm-hmm. Um, and this has repercussions for us as as professors. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you all sent me a story uh, from a week ago that uh, students have quote a dismaying inability to tell fake news from real news. Mm-hmm. 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 And yep. furthermore, during the campaign, Facebook reported that fake news stories um, got more traction, got more clicks and more views than real news stories yep. on Facebook. Yeah. Yep. Well, and, and I wouldn't, I mean, like, I don't want to like, hammer our, <laughs> the younger generation, right, for being particularly vulnerable to this. I mean, my <laughs> my sort of anecdotal um, observation on with my Facebook friends is that this was a problem across age groups, right? I mean, I had much older friends um, than me who were posting stuff that was just demonstrably false, right? And I got into it with, with them a few times and finally just, you know, in some cases just finally said, you know what, forget it. I mean, like, you know, I would I would comment, I was like, this is false, and I would explain why it's false. Right. And, oh, okay. And then, like, two minutes later, they're posting another one of these stories. Right. It's just like, forget it, right? Still, I can't win this, right? You're obviously not 
interested in actually finding out what's true. What you're wanting to do is post stories that make the people that you like look good and the people that you don't like look bad, right? And that's what you're interested in doing. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it feels like we've entered this new phase where that's yeah. the, the way, you know, things are. And it's, it seems like it's partly a proliferation of the technology. Like you can access so many stories at the mm-hmm. you know, just the click of a button, right? You can also create um, fake things easier. You can create fake things very easily, and you can just look at what you enjoy, right? So if you are lean right or you lean left, you find the the places that crank out the kind of stuff you mm-hmm. want to see. And so, I mean, you know, it's not that we didn't have political disagreements thirty five, forty years ago, but we all kind of watched the same stuff. We watched the same nightly news. Uh, we didn't have sort of this wild amount of sort of news sources available. Um, and so we kind of agreed on the facts. Even there if was we... also a common agreement on what the standards of evidence were. Yeah. That even yeah. if you were liberal or you were conservative, if right. the Wall Street Journal right. or, the, or the New York Times reported it, you kind of thought it was probably true. Yeah, you might not agree with the spin they put on it or something like that. Right. But you, but you agreed that the facts were the facts, right? Yeah. Um, and now it's like we can't even agree on the facts, right? I mean, people just, you know, they, they will, and they will deny things. It's like you, we had this on video, right? Where did, we had where this, did this, this Where did this come from? Like, this, uh, it seems like we're becoming dislodged from, I guess, empirical standards of evidence. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a good question. I, I don't know if I'm trying to think where the where the genesis of this is. I mean, is it just a, a byproduct of sort of the extreme party polarization, which we've got a lot of evidence to suggest we become much more polarized in the last mm-hmm. 20 years. In other words, we, the Republicans have become much more um, consolidated in their conservatism and, re, you know, all sort of ideologically in agreement. Um, same with Democrats with their liberalism. So is it just a product of that? And then you seek out the sources that you find that are friendly. And then, you know, the news people... Are other people observe like, oh, people mm-hmm. like these stories that are extreme to the left or extreme to the right. Mm-hmm. What if we made up stories um, that were even more extreme and weren't factual, but, you know, would get lots of clicks and therefore we right. could make money off that? Um, you know, I, I'm guessing it's something like that, but I don't know. I mean, it's yeah. Mitch, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think sort of the sort of I don't know, sort of a slippery, slippery slope story, which mm-hmm. I know people use that term to say something's invalid i think that's untrue some slopes are slippery (laughs) um (laughs) so you know um so 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 especially when we look at something like this where there's an economic incentive and things like that Mm -hmm. um there's definitely i think a story um that is very plausible there Mm -hmm. um i think another part of this i I, I guess i guess there are sort of two things i think number one um i we may have talked about this before but you know this is sort of the natural state actually i think of Mm -hmm. journalism Hmm. you know um the natural state of journalism is to not be that concerned with what's actually true uh you know and if you look at American history and just yep. history of journalism in general. I mean, that's usually where it is. Mm-hmm. Usually people in, in history have just said mm-hmm. what they think they want to be true. Yeah. Like they don't yeah. They don't actually try to be that careful about, oh, is this actually the way it is? You know, I mean, if you go back to the founding, I mean, most of the newspapers mm-hmm. are saying, mm-hmm. like, you know, like horrible things about everybody who, you know, some, occasionally it's true, but most of the time right. it's just made up right. stuff. Interesting. You know? And yeah. so, you know, so, so when we look at our newspapers now, I mean, really what we're mm-hmm. kind of seeing is just... Uh, a return to that. Um, so maybe the yeah. question should be how do we have how do we have it so good for fifty years or better? Right, exactly. And I think right. you know technology, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. as Andy maybe was suggesting, is kind of the answer to that. Right, we had mm-hmm. a handful of major newspapers, and then we had you know network television, and that really homogenized and raised the bar in many mm-hmm. ways for what it takes to actually report something. Yeah. Um, and now that that's fallen apart, and we've kind of reverted to this place where you know you don't go to these major central places for news. Um, you know, we sort of revert back to this normal place where, you know, evidence doesn't matter that much. Um, and I think, mm-hmm. I think another element to this, maybe just to kind of take us, st- cause I think mm-hmm. Andy's story is probably the right one, um, mm-hmm. in terms of what's going on there. But I think just to take one other step back too, is to think about, you know, 
sort of the, um, you know, Chris used the word epistemology, but to think about the way that we... <laughs> Should we define way, that? For well, epistemology just means theory of knowledge. Uh, right. How do you know? Basically, it asks the question, how do you know what you know? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so one of the things to think about is, you know, we all have worldviews. We all have right. basic assumptions that shape how we view the world. And that actually mm-hmm. influences mm-hmm. which facts we think are important. Yep. It influences how we interpret facts right. um, and things like that. And so, you know, we all have these sort of basic assumptions. And when we look at politics... Uh, you know, what, what we've seen, and I think if you think about sort of like talk radio, you know, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, sort of like maybe Rush Limbaugh in, sure. you know, maybe 10 years ago or something like that. If you think about what, what he does, and I haven't listened to Rush for a long time, but, you know, what he does, or at least what he used to, I don't know what he does, what he does now, but what he used to do is he would have a, what he would refer to as the stack of stuff, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And he would say, I'm sitting here next to the stack of stuff, and basically it was <laughs> news articles that he had pulled from various, and his staff had pulled from various right. newspapers. Right. But even in in the fact that he would give a certain spin to all those stories, he was still drawing on whatever the facts of the day were. Right. right he would right, say, "Here's right. a wa- you know, here's a Washington Post article that says X and Y." And even though you know, and he would say, "Even though the Post is spinning it like this and this, they've got it totally wrong because this shows that you know, right. yeah. the Republicans are the good guys or whatever." Right. <laughs> um, and right. so you'd look at this, and so, but but essentially, what is happening? What that, what that sets up then is it says, look, if you're interpreting the narrative correctly, our side is right. right. Mm. But that's still connected to the facts. And I think what Andy mm-hmm. is describing, what we're maybe seeing now, is loosening up from that and saying, well, you yeah. know what? Maybe we don't even need to wait for sort of spinning what's actually true. We can just mm-hmm. make up what's true and right. that will make it even easier. Right, and, right, and, and, and also yeah. just to just to point, build on Andy's point, I also agree with the. I, I also have the anecdotal evidence that actually my younger friends are more astute in sussing out the fake mm-hmm. news mm-hmm. than my older friends. I feel like a lot of the yeah. older folks on my Facebook yeah. page are actually worse at this than um, than the younger folks. Well, but precisely because they are still in that mindset, I think. Right? I mean, like you do trust the journalism, and so then you go to the ones you you like, right? Mm-hmm. And you assume that it's right. And I think we're a lot more cynical. We in the sort of the crew that's younger than yeah. us, even. Um, because we're in this new era where we realize a lot of it's false. Now, it doesn't mean we don't still gravitate toward you know sources we agree with, but but at least we have a little more of a consciousness that this might be. Mm. And, and to be clear be here, I, um, I don't. I am less worried about fake fake news like the CNN pornography story, sure. mm-hmm. or the Onion, or things like that. Um, <laughs> I am worried about right. half fake news, mm-hmm. um, right. the things where there are facts that are verifiable. And then right. facts that are right. blatantly false and that they are commingled in right. a way that makes interpretation really difficult. Uh-huh. Right. Um, yeah. There was – yeah, we can um, – and I, and I think we – that has the potential for more uh, political manipulation mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. In, you know than an Onion article or something like that. Yeah, and it was, it was interesting a couple of years back where – I mean well, more than a couple now, but you know where – you know, younger people started going to places like John Stewart, right, in the Daily Show yeah. to get news, mm-hmm. right, yeah. and it, and again, that's one of those places where you know John Stewart was doing it to be funny, right? It's a, it was clearly a comedy show, right? Yeah. right, and it mingled real stuff with sort of fake stuff, and and so maybe that also, I mean, I'm just sort of still trying to process, but maybe it, you know, maybe that too prepared the way for this, right? Where it's like, well, you know, you could do this with comedy, and now you can just do it with sort of. Semi-real sources. Yeah. Really. One of the things I think that, and I think this gets to why we find this disturbing, is I was as I was making my long drive home for Thanksgiving. Um, this will show how I guess maybe that I'm a little bit a little bit nerdy here, but uh, <laughs> we're shocked. <laughs> yeah, much. we're shocked. Yeah. Um, anyway, but I was listening to a number of podcasts, and I was listening to um, a BBC presentation on uh, that basically <laughs> analyzed the history of Animal Farm. Okay, and Ooh. so it's 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 very it's excellent. Um, I just taught that book, by the way. Yeah. So anyway, so I was reading Animal Farm. One of the things that they were talking about was you know Orwell in that 
book basically portrays um, leaders and tyrants as just being silly. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about, you know, Napoleon and he's always doing these silly things, you know, right. Napoleon was, the pig, not Napoleon, Napoleon the pig, right? Yeah, he right, goes out, he right. gets drunk, he runs around and looks silly. And then the next day, like, you know, Squealer comes out, you know, which is his spokesperson pig yes. and says, oh, Napoleon is dying mm-hmm. and all this stuff, right? To try to distract from this. But, you know, as, right. as we're talking about this stuff and the fake news and all this stuff, I can't help but feel like, you know, that this looks a lot like that. <laughs> you know, it just feels very much like this sort of squealer mm-hmm. moment where this stuff is obviously not true. And everybody saw that it wasn't true. Mm-hmm. Right. right. It's like verifiable. You know, squealer isn't dying. He just got drunk and he was stupid. Right. Um, but then you have somebody coming out and saying, oh, it's not true. And then the other animals go along. and They're like, oh, you know, and you, you know, maybe maybe he is dying. Maybe it's mm-hmm. not so good. And so, you know, it sort of feels like yeah. we're sort of entering an era where that becomes easier. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, try to tie this off a little bit with an epidemiological kind of analogy, wow. which, which makes me nervous. Makes but, me nervous, too. Um, our, <laughs> well, hold on here. Um, our, our bodies tend to be pretty elastic. Uh, you pull a muscle, it bends back, right? right? And I'm hopeful that that's what our civil society is like. Mm-hmm. If we're sort of moving away from like, a firm commitment to um, evidentiary standards of truth, Mm-hmm. Um, whether they are whether they support the right or the left, right. um, I hope we move back to that. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, we do know that there are parts of our bodies. Like if you if you dislocate a joint, it makes it easier to dislocate in the future. Mm-hmm. And I'm this is sort of uh, Mitch's slippery slope, I guess. I'm worried that as we continue to unmoor ourselves mm-hmm. from a firmer commitment to uh, logical standards of evidence, um, that it's going to be easier and easier to say that those things just don't matter. Right. That that's, that, 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 that's, that's just your opinion. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as professors, as, as scholars, as academics, um, that should, that's very, that should be very frightening to us. Mm-hmm. And, um, because that, yeah. um, what, how do we grade a student who, um, who we ask to support, uh, an argument with data and they say, well, that data is just your, that's, that's just your opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of this gets to uh, even the way, you know, I was actually talking with my students about this yesterday, but it gets to the way that we, uh, and in some ways, maybe this is another one of our problems, but, you know, the way we teach even elementary school kids mm-hmm. that we say, you know, there's this, we say, we say there's facts and opinions, mm-hmm. but we don't actually do a very good job actually telling them that, you know, uh, first of all, telling them how to differentiate these things, right. because there right. are things that are more than opinions that we still classify as opinions, like moral ideals and things sure. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that certainly aren't simply opinions <laughs> right, in many right. cases. Um, but then we also, you know, on the on the side of the fact, you know, we don't do a very good job of, like, helping students understand that the way to have a, a real opinion is to actually have something that is substantiated by verifiable evidence. Right. Yeah. It's not simply something you make up, which is kind of the suggestion, I think, in elementary school. Right. Yeah. Well, gents, this is uh, going to be an ongoing conversation for us. Yes. We're going to—I want to dip back into some of these shifts in society, but just to presage where we're headed, uh, we're going to come back next week. We're going to talk about the first hundred days of the Trump administration, what we should expect, what people should look for, um, possible legislative action and executive actions that might be taking place early on in the mm-hmm. Trump admi- uh, presidency. And I'd also like to um, turn as we uh, as we sort of wrap up this election season, how we study the presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, of the three of us, none of us are explicitly presidential scholars, but we're familiar with this field. We're familiar with how people do this. And I'd like to talk about maybe how our listeners could examine the Trump presidency as we move through it together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, good. But uh, for now, on behalf of my colleagues, thank you for joining me. This is Chris Moore at Bethel University saying, Go Royals. Go Royals.